Aaron, you kind of explained what Mills meant when he described the power elite, the political, economic, and military circles that influence national decisions. So how does Mills explain for history? Um, you know, the, the Marxist understanding of history is this, this constant clash between the working class and the ruling class, and these contradictions lead to a kind of momentum that pushes uh, history forward, and history is this clash of conflicts between the wealthy ruling class and the working class. Mills is not necessarily a Marxist. He's influenced by Marxism, but he is also a materialist, and materialism is something that he shares with Marxism, a materialist understanding of history that sees history as maybe not necessarily the same kind of dialectical way that a Marxist would see it, but it does see it rooted in conflict over economics and resources and labor. So what is Mill's theory of history? Yeah, Mill's one understood that you needed to put your analysis of society and politics into historical context. Uh, and so he had to grapple with different views of history and situate himself you know, somewhere along those lines. He spoke of two ideal types of history, people who viewed history as drift or fate or the unseen hand, right? Like the way to imagine this is if Oedipus was his, was history, right? That it's all sort of preordained and were the, the people that seem to be the protagonists are really guided along by forces that they don't really influence. And there's just too much fate and that's over fate and the circumstances are overdetermining. And so people are really just sort of caught up in this and they can't do much about it. Things will just unfold the way they were meant to unfold. Uh, and so the it's kind of for liberals, this is uh, their version of this is kind of the unseen hand of like liberal uh, capitalist development and so on that like all of these people are working in different ways, endeavoring and carrying out, you know, their little their business and participating in politics, or whatever. And it's all going to add up to something but because there's so many people involved, so many hands that are in that are somehow influencing history that you can't really say that anybody is responsible for for anything and, and history is just going to unfold the way that it unfolds um and so this is kind of a way of um it, it's a it's a, mills puts it as a way of soothing your own conscience if you are uh, on the of a semi-leftish persuasion and, they, and you realize that politics is kind of not easily influenced in in progressive ways by and large for whatever reason then you can kind of attribute it to eh, the fact that it's just sort of this agentless force going forward and, and historical events unfold that way. Now, the other version of it, the other ideal type, which Mills also rejects, is all of history as conspiracy, where you're just saying that, oh, yeah, everything is the result of a particular identifiable set of villains or heroes, and they're secretly plotting things behind the scenes, and this is how everything in the world plays out. So there are famous versions of this, like, uh, you know, the Jewish version of it or the, the one that puts the Jews at the center of everything, right? We're familiar with that. And then there's the updated version of that, which which is the, like, globalists, you know what I mean? Where it's, like, the people who are more or less saying the same things that, like, anti-Semites used to say, except they just say globalists. And now a criticism of, you can say transnational capital, and you could even call those people globalists, and then you're talking about something that's more, you know, grounded in actual reality, but these right-wingers are, who are talking about globalists are not critics of capitalism. So when they start talking about globalists, you have to wonder, you know, what do they really mean? 
And it's really just a way of uh, rehabilitating a, you know, a, a Zionist centered global conspiracy uh, and repackaging it in such a way so that you have this other set of villains, but you're not really looking at capitalism writ large. You're not seeing it as part of a capitalist system. But and anyway, that was, that was what Marx was writing about in on the Jewish question. Uh, people tend to get all up in arms thinking that he was writing something anti-Semitic, but he's really talking about that conspiracy form of history being uh, attributed to some kind of unitary class where you see it as just all controlled by shadowy people at the top. And whether or not you call it the ruling class, the bourgeoisie, or the, the you know, just Jewish people in general, it's always going to end up landing you at some sort of bastardized form of, of history where you miss the way that it comes out of the, the struggle and out of the dialectic, like Ben was saying, and not out of just some one class deciding all of the factors all at once. Well, and then, of course, Marx himself was very clear to to, to uh, caution against a hyper-structuralist understanding of history where, you know, you talked about this Oedipin kind of idea that history can't be changed and we're all just gears in the machine. I mean, his famous quote that history weighs on the living like a nightmare, weighs on the brain of the living like a nightmare. But he says that although we obviously can't change the history that we've inherited, we can try to use that history and the material conditions that were inherited to try to create a new, a new world. I mean, Marx was involved in the International Working Men's Association, which became the International, and was clearly he clearly believed that people could change history. So, I mean, he, like Mills, was struggling with that same kind of that contradiction, dialectical contradiction between the idea that history is completely structural structural and individuals have no influence and then the conspiracy strictly conspiracy understanding that individuals are the ones pulling the strings right and the elite theory is a way to reconcile those two things okay so in a in a in the biggest sense these are it's like structure versus agency but like sort of distilled into two ideal typical uh hist historical you know ways of looking at things um but the the problem the thing is that you do need to figure out who has agency and structure bequeaths agency to certain people and certain actors and certain segments of society. And so that's what he was really describing. He was describing the enormous agency brought about by the particular structure of American society uh, and the way that politics and the economy and the military machine were interacting and that the people at the top of these hierarchies themselves had a lot of agency bequeathed to them by the structure of the, of the whole system. And so he, he really laid this out. And he uh, I did this, I think, brilliantly for the American system, and he had to go back in time to explain different historical eras uh, to this end. And I, without going into great detail on all of them, he saw the U.S. at the post-war era as being the fifth of different eras in the U.S. power structure. The first one is this kind of this era of elite cohesion uh, after, after the war for independence and through John Adams. That's one the one period where the military and the uh, political leadership and the cultural elites were all kind of on the same page, and power was so decentralized because of the nature of technology and such that you know the, the elites were not able to dominate that way, even as they were kind of spread across the major institutions of the United States. They were still so weak that it didn't really matter. The what you could call the antebellum period goes from Jefferson to the Civil War, 
And this is a time where there is that yeoman farmer, which is kind of mythologized, but also something that did exist to some to some extent and did produce a kind of freedom and independence from political domination and despotism like people had experienced in Europe. Uh, thanks to the amount of arable land in the United States relative to the population, and uh, once you have the American Indian population gone or or otherwise under control, then there were a lot of opportunities there and a kind of freedom that was available in the U.S. during this period, uh, which he called the period of romantic pluralism, uh, because there but there was some actual pluralism in the United States because of the structure of the economy and the technology at that point. Then you get the Gilded Age, which goes up to through the Great Dep- up to the Great Depression, uh, and the Gilded Age, Gilded Age is the rise of corporate power, really cemented in 1886 with the Supreme Court decision that grants corporate personhood uh, using the 14th Amendment as a pretext. And this era persisted until the Great Depression, where all of that corporate, you know, dominance resulted in this horror, this economic catastrophe. And the New Deal era kind of changes politics, but ultimately it brings in, it, it kind of gives rise to the power elite because it brings economic people into the management in certain ways with the federal government. And uh, the federal government cannot bring these forces into to bear without having them uh eventually kind of take over the show and and the US becomes an empire at this point with world war 2 going on at the same time and so this uh this era was is is key because in the new deal you didn't have a change you, you had fdr saving the main pillars of capitalism and so this ends up giving rise to the US and the federal government being powerful enough to organize itself for and mobilize for world war 2 and then to take that sort of power and organizational strength and parlay that into a, a global empire uh, that we're still living through probably the tail end of. But that, that, that era of entering the U.S., entering into World War II and then establishing that empire up to Mills's 1956, you know, which really, it's, you're really talking about a 15-year time period or so if the U.S. enters the war in 1941. Um, that, that Mills was describing as the fifth epic of American history. And the sixth one, I would argue, is the, Bre- the end of Bretton Woods and the rise of the neoliberal imperial era. And uh, that's where the U.S. takes an even more avaricious and right-wing turn in the way it's going to run global capitalism. And we're seeing it kind of crumble uh, in real time these days uh, as we're living through all of these interesting times. That was just an excerpt from the American Exception podcast. To hear the whole episode, as well as archived and new episodes, please subscribe to the American Exception podcast at Patreon. There's a link in the show notes, or you can just go to patreon.com slash American Exception. Subscribe, and you can join us as we illuminate the dark side of the U.S. empire.